Thank you for listening to Taken by the Sea by John Rosetta. This is the adventure of William Harris, a true story of a journey across the globe by one of the founding fathers of the world's smallest republic. We are proud to present this podcast to you, and we hope you'll follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Please rate us on your podcast platform of choice if you enjoy these episodes. And now we begin with Chapter 2, In Suspense, Part 1. I expected to see some degree of horror in her eyes. If it was indeed there, I couldn't see it. There was something so piercing about her stare, fixated on me through the bars of my cell, that it forced me to turn away. I limped to the corner of the cramped space, towards the small window and the cold London sky above. I thought to myself about how I might never see the sun again, and how I had taken a simple privilege like that for granted. I looked back towards her, and my mind drifted back to the night we had met. I deserted her there on the terrace, not knowing if I'd ever see her again. While my mind had a preference to drift back to her that evening, for the most part the vast majority of my attention, mind and body, remained in a state of panic. Marcus had shuffled me into a carriage and was telling me what little he knew of the situation. Word came by messenger. I was looking all over for you. He exclaimed with a hint of exasperation. All that I know is that your father has taken ill and that your mother sent word for you to return home immediately. And that's all you know, I said, perhaps a bit too aggressively. I'm afraid so. We sat in silence for a few moments, as restlessness settled in among us. Are you really not going to tell me who the girl is? Was the question he had been holding back. I looked at him, trying to communicate non-verbally how annoyed I was by this question. Mary Dobson. I eventually relented. Indeed. Jack Dobson's widow. He paused long enough that I presumed our conversation was over. They say she drove him mad. My attempt at non-verbal communication this time was immediately successful. As I mentioned, Mary was not completely absent from my thoughts, but nearly every part of me was filled with anxiety about what I might find when I arrived home. My father, through his steadfast work ethic and quiet kindness, was the bedrock of our family. In addition to saving the family business from the recklessness of my grandfather, through his temperament, he also acted as the de facto mediator for my mother and I. I was almost completely saturated by worry as we sped closer. He was still relatively young, but somewhere in my consciousness I was uncovering hints of his deteriorating health. He was not one to complain, to us or to anyone, but there was no doubt that the work was taking a toll on him. We finally arrived at my family's home. I jumped out of the carriage, even before it came to a full stop. I burst through the door, without knocking as Marcus scrambled behind me. In my parents' bedroom, my father lay under the covers, unconscious but in obvious pain. The small room was lit by a single small candle on the table next to my kneeling mother. On the other side of the bed stood Reginald Duffy, our trusted doctor, for as long as I could remember. In that moment, my words failed me. What's happened here? Marcus urgently asked. Thank God you're here, Will. My mother said. He collapsed in the kitchen a few hours ago. I was still at a loss for words. I could see from underneath the blankets that there was inflammation around his midsection. It looked like he was in pain, even in his unconscious state. Of course I'm here, Mummy. I managed to say. Doctor, what do you make of it? Dr. Duffy, despite the suspicious fact of being born a Scotsman, was a trusted member of the community. 
a favorite of nearly everyone. He was a naturally funny person with a lot of energy despite his advanced age. There was, however, on this occasion, nothing but concern in his eyes. My best guess is appendicitis. Perhaps ulcers brought on by stress. Or a combination of the two. He gravely replied. If he had come to me sooner, I might have been able to do more. What are you telling us? Marcus asked. He leaned against the window ledge and took a deep breath. I've given him what I can to ease the pain, but in his condition, taking him to one of the facilities in London is not an option. I've certainly seen patients in worse conditions recover, but I just can't be sure. I couldn't tell if Dr. Duffy was trying to give us a scrap of hope to hold on to. His expression was telling me everything I needed to know. Thank you, Doctor, for all that you've done. We will always be indebted to you, I told him. I wish I could do more. He stated with complete sincerity. Once things progress to this stage, it's often in God's hands. We spoke for a while longer, until I was regretfully convinced that nothing more could be done. In due time, Marcus and Dr. Duffy left us, leaving me with my parents. It was eerily quiet in the room, one person unable to talk, and two unwilling. Over the next day and a half my mother and I would alternate time spent with my father. Truthfully, I'm not sure why we did this, as the time spent away from the room was only filled with fitful sleep and unfinished meals. My father, outside of his laboured breathing, hardly showed any signs of life. Occasionally he would grunt or shift in his bed, which we clinged to as some semblance of positivity. On the second night of his illness, it was well past midnight, when I was awoken by his voice. He had managed to sit up slightly and his eyes were open wide. William! He strained to say, Yes, I'm here. Please, save your strength. I jumped to his side. I'll go get Mum. No, no. He coughed. There's no time. I, I need to tell you something. Is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable? He brushed aside my question. I wasn't strong enough. He told me. I wasn't strong enough to make my mark on this world. Don't say things like that. Of course. You are smarter than I ever was, and more restrained than your grandfather. I believe in you, and I know you will succeed where we failed. When you've recovered, you'll regret saying all of this, I managed to say as I took his cold hand. You still have so much to teach me. Maybe so. He struggled to say. All we can do is the best we can with the time we have. I stood up from the bed and looked towards the doorway. My mother needed to know he was awake. Without looking back towards him... I scrambled to wake her. She dashed into the bedroom, faster than I have ever seen her move. I expected her to be relieved, but she was precisely the opposite. His laboured breathing had stopped, and his face was frozen in time. Something deep inside our human nature told us both that he was dead. She began to cry, and I held her while not quite believing that my father was gone. I loved and admired him, and at moments such as those, nothing else mattered aside from the grief that quickly creeps in. He was the most wonderful version of a man. I still miss him to this day, all these years later. Everything after that seemed to go by in a sorrowful flash. The wake, the funeral, countless people familiar and unfamiliar, saying all the right things that bring no comfort at all. The support of others provides such little protection against the forces of absence and regret. Rather than focusing on my own pain, I diverted my attention to my grieving mother, who in truth was never the same. This was perhaps cowardly and unhealthy of me to do so. Emotion has a way of making decisions for us when our minds are occupied. 
The haze of the event seemed to dissipate around a month later. While my mind had been in no state for practical affairs, Marcus had offered to examine my father's finances and those of our family's company. While I was generally familiar with the basics of our import-export business, I had never taken the time to discuss anything of substance with my father. This was partially due to a lack of interest on my part, but mostly due to his attitude of not exposing my mother and I to the burden that he saw as his to bear. I wished he was a bit less of a martyr, especially as his burdens had now become mine. I had arranged to meet Marcus at our main warehouse on a cloudy morning in June. The building had been originally purchased by my grandfather and consisted of a large, dusty first floor to house everything you could imagine, newly arrived from France. The second floor contained separate holding areas for some of the higher-end items and a few small private offices. When I arrived, Marcus sat behind my father's desk with papers and ledgers chaotically surrounding him. I had taken the last few weeks to myself, and despite the look on his face, it was still a comfort to see him. It was strange to see anyone besides my father behind that desk. He had spent more time in that room than he had with me, even more so in recent years. The room and my whole life seemed empty without him. How are you? Marcus asked, leaning back in the chair. I feel like I'm about to be a bit worse. I was hoping for a rebuke of some kind, but it never came. In truth, I had been delaying and in some cases avoiding anything to do with the family business out of a foreboding sense of dread. I expected a painful conversation, and I was not disappointed. I'm afraid things look rather grim, he said slowly. I knew he was doing his best to gently ease me back into reality, but it was making me even more nervous. Out with it, man, I said. I need to know. Your father's business has been operating at a loss for quite some time. I think you'll be lucky to survive until the new year. That was far worse than I had imagined. A chill of shock and terror filled me in that moment. How could this be? I managed to say. Simply put, prices in France and here have been changing erratically. Your father had gotten caught on the wrong side of quite a few of these changes, being forced to sell what he could at a loss. Import businesses have always been a bit of a gamble, but in these times those stakes have gotten even higher. What if we reconsidered what items we're importing, perhaps focus on more stable assets? The larger sellers have beaten you to it. Even if you could get the agreements in time, you don't have the capital to keep pace. I sat back, trying to process all that was being said to me. I now realized why he was so reluctant to be forthright. Will, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but your doors will have to close, probably sooner rather than later. I had expected that massive changes would probably need to be made, with a promise of hope and efficiency at the end of a long tunnel. There was no hope here. I began to look around the room, hoping that the walls could tell me how this could have happened. Do you think he knew? I asked. Marcus was expecting this question, but he still found it difficult to answer. Certainly, he admitted. Almost without any doubt. I will never know exactly what caused the death of my father, but it is still hard to dismiss the conclusion I had jumped to in that moment. The mental and emotional burdens of our failing family business had been his undoing. And yet, his final words to me did not reflect that. He still believed in a business and a societal system that he must have known was about to kill him. Instead of asking larger questions of himself, or questioning the very definition of success, his final words told me that he simply viewed himself as a failure. That introduced me to a new layer of sadness, one I was not expecting. I see, was all I could say. 
you're going to need to make some pretty hard decisions. He told me firmly, but not aggressively. But we do have a little time. Let's meet the day after next and we'll put our heads together then. I nodded and stood up. As I did so, I became slightly lightheaded. From stress, shock or physical weakness, I'll never know. Will you be at the bonfire night party at Ellis' house? He asked. I had completely forgotten that the next day was Guy Fawkes' night. Our annual festival of fireworks and fun, for what could only be described as historically confusing motivations. Mary Dobson is sure to be there. Surely she must have forgotten about me by now. I replied. He shrugged. I've heard rumours that she's been asking after you in certain circles, and I remember the way she was looking at you on the terrace that night. I still wasn't convinced as he guided me out the door. Plus, women never forget anything. That's one of the many reasons they're so infuriating. Before we parted ways, I reluctantly agreed to attend his party. My motivation centred around my current preference for distraction over solitude, rather than any concept of romance. I had every hope to see Mary again, but the pragmatist in me knew that there must be other interested parties, and for someone like her, several months would yield plenty of suitors. Despite my tempered expectations, I welcomed the nervous excitement as I prepared for the evening. Although this was by no means as elaborate of an affair as the Earl's summer soiree, I found myself preparing in much the same way, and with significantly more attention to detail. Thank you for listening to Taken by the Sea. We hope you'll join us next time for William's journey to London to meet Mary on Guy Fawkes Night. Until then, we hope that you'll follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and be sure to tell your friends if you're enjoying the story. Thank you again for listening, and we'll return soon with Chapter 2, Part 2, In Suspense.